0: Revelation chapter 1, uh, this morning we will be reading verses 19, chapter 1, uh, 2, chapter 2 and verse 7. Uh, this is the word of the Lord, dear saints, please give it your full attention. Therefore write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. The seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands say this. Says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. And that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent. And do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you. Precious Son, thank you. Ever-present spirit, thank you for your word. Help us to learn from this church of Ephesus. Help us, Lord, to not grow cold as they grew cold in their love. Lord, give us listening ears, understanding minds, believing hearts. And Lord, help us to obey. I decrease that you may increase, be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. well again I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ I welcome you on this Lord's day Sabbath as we continue our study through John's apocalypse uh, our brother John as we learned last week has been confronted with a vision of glory holiness and majesty in Christ he has been given a, a vision as Christ of Christ as our uh, King-priest, or priest-king forever. Christ also as our prophet, Christ who is the first and the last, and Christ who is holding the keys of death and Hades. John's response, as we noted last week, is one that is biblically consistent with any person who is confronted with the presence of the holiness of God. We learned that he falls on his face like a dead man. And the risen, reigning Lord of glory, in response to John's response, extends his right hand of power. And rather than than crush John under a hand of judgment, the Lord mercifully offers him grace and commands him not to fear. Now, on the basis of who Christ is, What Christ has done and the the surety that all the citizens of the kingdom of God have in Christ, John is commissioned by Christ to write what he sees. John is to write to the churches. Now, you're going to need your scriptures with you. He's commissioned to write to the churches concerning things, as he says, things that have been seen, things that are and things that will take place. And then listen to this phrase. After these things. The phrase, after these things, is synonymous with the vision given in Daniel chapter 2, wherein Daniel uses the phrase, when he's given this vision, he uses the phrase, in the latter days. Uh, After these things, and in the latter days, they are synonymous with one another. Last days, that phrase is also used In Joel 2, in the last days. And then in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, where Peter says, This is that which Joel spoke about that would happen in the last days. It's meant to express that something is about to end or be fulfilled. But it also is marking the beginning of something new. Last days is marking the end of something and then also the beginning of another thing. John was to write about the things that will take place. And when they do, it will be the fulfillment in one sense and the beginning in another sense. The fulfillment of one and the beginning of another. Let me uh, reiterate what has already been, re- been said before. But I think it's important at this point. In Daniel's time, Daniel saw latter days As being something that would take place in the distant future. John looks at Daniel's prophecy as something no longer being in the distant future, but something that is happening presently when John was was writing. That which Daniel spoke of is happening now. Meaning the last days for you and I. It's not something in the future. It's something that we are presently in. It's important that we understand that as we are looking at these texts, that when Christ says things that you have seen, things which are things that are to take place after these things, we therefore don't view revelation as being somehow chronological. Chronological, meaning this, that when we're reading and studying through revelation, we don't see the things that, are being said as being something that's going to happen later in the last days, but that we are in the last days. Revelation is not meant to be seen as, or, or, mean to be seen chronological. It's not meant to be seen through a, a chronological lens, but an eschatological lens, meaning it's not to be seen as something that first this will happen and then this will happen and this this will happen and then the last days, but rather it's meant to be seen as all the things that transpire. In these the last days. We've been conditioned to view this book as a chronological book and not an eschatological book. GK Beale in his commentary on Revelation, Revelation 119, says "Uh, Revelation one nineteen highlights not so much the historical order of either the visions that's important. Uh, When we get to the visions we're going to see that that certain things that John sees, he's already uh, seen them, but saying them in another way. It's not a whole new vision. We'll get to those. Or the events that the visions represent, but rather focuses on those events in order to describe the climactic end of the ages. The world as we know it. In Daniel 2.44, the prophet sees in the latter days... Listen to what he sees. A final kingdom. There's four kingdoms that he sees. And then in the last vision, he sees a final kingdom. And that final kingdom topples all the other kingdoms. It overthrows all the other kingdoms. Daniel sees a kingdom that will never be toppled, toppling the other kingdoms. A kingdom that will never be destroyed, destroying all the other kingdoms. And that kingdom endures forever. Well, what kingdom could he be speaking of? What does John emphasize over and over again in his first chapter? Even in the first chapter, what have we been calling ourselves over the past few weeks? Revelation 1.5, John says, Christ the ruler. Here's what he sees. Christ the ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh-oh. In Revelation six, he says, he has made us to be a kingdom. In Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom... And then he turns and sees a royal vision of Christ. Revelation 1.13. And in the middle I saw, in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man clothed in a robe. That's a royal robe, reaching down to his feet. John sees Daniel's vision of a heavenly kingdom that will never be destroyed as being fulfilled as Christ has established his kingdom, inaugurated his kingdom. When he says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. That kingdom that Daniel saw. That would endure forever. That would never be toppled. That uh, toppled all the other kingdoms. Is the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of God. Which John says. We are now living in. And members of. Citizens of. And one day the kingdom will be. Consummated. It's inaugurated. It's being established now. And one day it will be consummated. When Christ returns, John will communicate matters of establishing and consummating the kingdom as we go forth. That, that's what John is communicating. It's the, the lens through which we are to read revelation. It's the establishing and the consummating of the kingdom of Christ. Christ stands in the middle of the lampstands. And as Brother Dustin said earlier, he sees. He sees all. But he also gives some clarity. He gives clarity as to what the lampstands are and what the stars are. In verse 20 he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Here's the, the explanation. The seven stars are angels of the seven churches and the lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands, as we have noted in previous sermons, they are meant to symbolize the church. These seven churches are being addressed; that are being addressed are meant to represent the complete body of Christ. Hence, the number seven—the complete body of Christ. If you listen uh, to the end of each uh, address to the churches, the Lord will say, he who, has a spirit, "He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says." Not to the church but to the churches. Meaning the thing that's addressed to one church is for all the churches. And it's for all the churches of all times. It's the most common matters that the church and churches will experience until Christ returns. Now, not to get too much into the weeds, but we need to a little bit. As to the stars, there's some debate over this this identification, the symbolic meaning of the stars. Some say the stars are angels because Christ identifies them as angels, angels that are pastors, pastors over the seven churches. Others say they are the messengers who will deliver the letter to the churches. I'm going to quote G.K. Bill again because I think he, in, in the eight commentaries that I have, His is the best. And I've been reading through them all. Every time I go to his, I'm saying this one's the best one. Here's his explanation. The angels include both heavenly beings and earthly churches, according to the idea of corporate representation, which is suggested further by recognizing that angelic beings are corporately with Christians as their heavenly counterparts. In Revelation 19.10 and 22.9, where the angel identifies himself as a fellow servant of you and your brothers. Interesting that God is putting angels into the same category as saints. The church. Here's another thing. In every other place wherein stars are being used, that's 60 of them, it always refers to angels. Literal angels. So if we come to this passage and say, but this one means something different, it's not consistent with the 60 other times it's used that's meant to refer to actual angels. So, in a real but mysterious sense, the Lord has charged angels with caring for His church in spiritual ways. Very interesting. And listen, I read through the other eight commentaries because I said, this this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. But their explanation didn't make any sense. This explanation makes the most mysterious But true sense. The main reason, though, what's the point of it? The main reason for this angelic identification with us and angels to the church and our connection to them is to remind us that the church, we, that we are already citizens of another world. What's what's the point of this angelic connection? It's to remind us that we are already citizens of another world. If we're waiting for something to come. Wait no more. It's here. It's yours. It's now. We are part of the kingdom of God. So therefore, all that Christ is about to say to the churches in terms of encouragement, rebuke, is based on the church's union with Christ, and therefore, belonging to His kingdom, and not this worldly temporal kingdom. The Lord now begins to address each of the seven churches. And... There is something consistent about every single one of his addresses. They are, there are commendations, con- condemnations, a call to repent, and a promised reward for those who hear what the Spirit of God says in the churches. It will be consistent in every single one of the addresses. That is a con- commendation, that's encouragement, condemnation, and accusation, a call to repent, and a reward for those who hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and obey. The first church that was addressed is the church of Ephesus. This morning, with God's help, we shall consider the charge against that church. And here it is. It's a church with sound doctrine, but an unloving witness. If you're looking for a title, sound doctrine, but an unloving witness. Number one, the condemnation then. Chapter two, verse one through three, let's read it to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write: The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have perseverance and endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Brothers and sisters, uh, without causing you to stumble on the Sabbath, may I ask you a hypothetical question that you can answer in your mind. Don't get too excited. What is your favorite restaurant? In all the places that that you've ever been to, what is your favorite place to eat? I see smiles already. That's good. Think about it. Maybe you might be saying, I don't really have a favorite restaurant. What's your favorite meal? Maybe it was something that, that grandma made or grandpa made or dad or mom made or maybe something you can make. What's your favorite meal? Are you thinking of it? Uh, maybe some of you would like to take, if I could take this dish and then that one and add it all together and put this one on top of it, that's my. that would be my perfect meal. If you were to describe that restaurant, if you were to describe that dish, I believe that you would no doubt go into great detail about what the dish tastes like, why it is so good, whether it's best hot or cold, uh, when of the day you like to eat it, or when of the season you most often ate it. And I think that if you were to explain it, maybe you can do so after service, I'm sure that you would explain it with joy, that there would probably be a smile on your face and and maybe some nostalgia coming across your face. The description that you would give would hopefully be two things. It would hopefully be enticing and inviting. Enticing because it should sound good. And inviting because there should be an invitation attached to it, right? I'll take you someday. Or I'll make it for you someday. Well, there's something similar that happened in Ephesus. There was something happening to the enticing and inviting witness of the church of Ephesus. Christ speaks and says, the one who holds the stars in his right hand. Who walks among the golden lampstands. He takes this from chapter one. He sees. Now, let's talk about Ephesus for a moment. Ephesus was a leading city in Asia Minor. It was, if you will, the gateway to the Roman Empire, which was the Roman Empire. It had rivers and roads that connected to far off places, especially to the Roman Empire. It was famous for its large harbor, flourishing marketplace, and even the great temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was also an immoral city. It was known for paganism, known for idolatry. And in this kind of port city was nestled a people known and united to Christ, the church. Imagine, that's the setting that they're living in. That's the the circumstance, the the situation, the the context in which they're living. The church there in Ephesus, the one that's, that's being spoken to, began and was established 40 years earlier. Established by the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul even spent three years there. Establishing the church with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Helping the church to grow in love and knowledge of God. This church is the same church that the letter of Ephesians was addressed to 40 years earlier. It's the the letter that Paul wrote to them when he was on his missionary journey. When Paul would leave, he would leave the church in the care of a young man named Timothy. Timothy was young, but he was well trained, trained by the apostle Paul, also raised in a Christian home. His mother was a believer Paul wrote to Timothy two pastoral letters. 1st and 2nd Timothy. After Paul's death, the apostle John came. And he assisted in the church there in Ephesus. Helped to care for them. It was in Ephesus that John wrote the gospel of John. In Ephesus. It was in Ephesus, while in Ephesus, that John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd epistles of John. Brothers and sisters, this church of Ephesus has Many and has had many many benefits, haven't they? All of these wonderful things being done. Imagine in your church—that's kind of a, a a badge of honor. I belong to that church, founded by Christ in, in by the Apostle Paul, trained to have both a high understanding of Scripture and because Paul was all about getting the gospel out, they had a high emphasis. I'm sure of evangelism. Paul was a missionary. Paul would, would obviously want to make the gospel known to everyone. And what a beautiful combination. High understanding of scripture. Love for God. expressed in evangelism. The two must go together. The church was not perfect, but it was healthy. It was a church that had a great love for Christ. And again, though not perfect, they loved one another as well. And then Timothy. When Paul's not there, Timothy's there. And Paul and Timothy was there as well. We have no letters from Timothy. But we know that Paul, the great apostle, entrusted Timothy to that church. Entrusted that Timothy would care for that church, to oversee the church. He knew that Timothy knew sound doctrine. And though he was young, he knew that Timothy could handle the word of God with sufficiency. And that Timothy was able to refute all those who taught false doctrine. And then John, John the Beloved, comes, and he's also leading and serving in the church. This man that was dearly loved by Christ, the youngest of the disciples, uh, and probably the last to remain as well. He not only wrote the Gospel of John, wrote the three epistles there. He would have been able to also correct false teachings about Christ. He was with Christ. Nobody would have known Christ better than John. He would be able to teach them the teachings of Christ and also share his gospel message, the gospel that he had written, the gospel of John with the church. Imagine hearing the gospel of John from the person who wrote the gospel of John. So when they have questions, the the author can say, no, this is, this is what it means. (laughs) What amazing benefits that church had. We have the same benefits. Don't, 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 don't envy them too much. We have the same benefits. We have the spirit of God. The church received so many benefits. And now Christ is addressing that church. But it's the second generation of that church. It it, it is, if you will, the children of that first generation. If if you can imagine your children sticking around in this church and Christ is addressing them. Now, it's not exactly the children, but just for the sake of, of this sermon, we could call them the children of that church, of that first generation, the second generation. He begins his commendation by stating this. He knows their deeds. Again, how does Christ know? Because of his blazing eye. And that he is among the church. He's not only among the church with his blazing eye. He purifyingly sees all that takes place. He knows all. Nothing is hidden from Christ. And he therefore commands or commends the church for their, their listen to this, hard labor. He says, I know your deeds, your labor, You're toiling. Those three things are really one and the same. He is commending this doctrinal purity. He's commending doctrinal purity. He says, I know your deeds, toil and perseverance in what? In doctrinal purity. Now, not so much in persevering under persecution, physical persecution, although they were experiencing it, but it was not widespread. Not yet. As a matter of fact, two years after the letter, book of Revelation is written, in AD 97, church tradition says that Timothy, in opposing someone who was teaching something falsely, Timothy was dragged to the streets of Ephesus, that he was beaten and eventually stoned to death in AD 97. That is two years after Revelation is written. So persecution, physical persecution, it would intensify. But at this time, it was not as hot as it would be. They're persevering, their deeds, their toil, was mostly in reference to doctrinal faithfulness. And Christ adds specifics to this in order to, to back up uh, this claim because the church had discerned An inconsistency in a group that were calling themselves apostles. And they were not. These people claimed to be apostles. Not of the twelve. But of the wider followers of Christ. But they were also claiming to have apostolic authority. James the just. uh, Andronicus. Junia. Were some of these false teachers that are identified in some of the epistles. Watch out for them. They are false. The church of Ephesus became Uh, Because they knew apostles, because they were trained in sound doctrine, were, were faithful to examine these false apostles, and they were able to expose them as imposters and even as they are called evil men. It's quite possible that one of the ways that these evil men were exposed is because obviously their teachings did not match the teachings of the apostles and what they taught about what Christ taught the gospel that had been passed down to them. But that their teaching was more like the teachings of the, as identified here, the Nicolaitans or Nicolaitans. We'll address them in later sermons, but their teaching was one that attempted to harmonize the paganism that they were living in and Christianity. To mix the two of them together. It was a false doctrine that, That maybe these evil men were coming and trying to bring to the church of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus stopped it right in its tracks and said, no way, we don't think so. They were well taught. And they could recognize heresy for what it was. And they were quick to condemn that teaching and anyone who subscribed to those lies. They were commended, therefore, for their deeds. For their toil. For their persevering in defending right doctrine. Helping the church through constant learning and teaching. Teaching and learning, uh, learning and teaching, to grow in our understanding of the truth, is one of the great responsibilities of elders and gifted men. It's what we must do. Paul said concerning concerning the qualifications of an elder in Titus one nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In Titus two one, but as for you. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul told Timothy that there would be a time when people would not endure sound teaching. They would have itchy ears. They wouldn't have the patience for it. And he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.3, If anyone teaches teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teachings that accord with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. This church was well taught. They had a firm grasp on sound doctrine. Dear brothers and sisters, we must become so familiar with sound doctrine that it becomes a lifelong companion and friend of ours. We must not allow false teachings about the Trinity, about Christ and the gospel, about the inerrancy and sufficiency of God's word, and a host of other doctrines. We must not allow those doctrines to be compromised. Nor... Are we to entertain false teachers? Don't be their friends. Don't make them think for one second that their false teaching is okay. Hold on to that which is sound. Hold on to that which is true. Hold on to that which is orthodox. That which has been passed down from Christ and his apostles. And here's another thing. And we must love sound teaching. We must love sound doctrine. We must love that which accords with that which has been revealed in Scripture. Love God's Word. When you come, hopefully to this church, or wherever you hear sound doctrine, I pray that you love it. That it's not just academic, it's not just head, but it's head and heart. Where knowledge of God's Word and faithfulness to the purity of sound doctrine is lacking, there we will see a church that is helplessly being exposed to And drawn away with every wind of doctrine. Talk to the average person who says they confess Christ as their Lord. The average person. If they say reformed, then you're okay. Talk to the average person. Who say they confess Christ. And you will soon learn that they are unfortunately unlearned. That they're ignorant. That their doctrine is not orthodox. It's not sound. It's not even biblical. They lack knowledge of truth love for sound doctrine? Think the word theology is an ugly word? And do not get a regular dose of faithful instruction in God's word. It's no wonder why so many churches look like they probably belong to the church of the Nicolaitans. They're mixing the world and their brand of Christianity which is no Christianity at all. The church of Ephesus, well-trained. They were able to discern truth from error, orthodoxy from heresy, Christ from the Antichrist, and they could not, therefore, tolerate evil men, imposters who attempted to come and disrupt the church. Again, let us strive by the help of the Holy Spirit to be a church that is so well-equipped to defend sound doctrine that we may be rooted and grounded in the faith passed down from faithful men. I ask you, dear saints, after that, what could Christ possibly have against this church? It would seem as though they have it all together. But looks can be deceiving, can't they? Especially from the one who knows all and sees all. Number two, the condemnation. Verse four. But you have, but I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Now, when you hear that accusation, no, that accusation, when you hear uh, the condemnation, because it's true, it's not an accusation, it's true. What comes to your mind? You have left your first love. What could Christ be referring to? Here is the church that has been commended for their deeds, toil and perseverance and doctrinal purity. They obviously love God's word. So what could Christ be referring to? Well, let me uh, put myself out there for a moment. Many, including myself before this study, believe that Christ was reprimanding the church because they no longer loved Christ. Because they no longer loved him. Many well-intending pastors, including myself, use this passage to encourage greater devotion in our devotional life. Let me see if this is what you were thinking about. You've left your first love. Maybe some of us thought, I don't read like I used to. I know I don't pray like I used to. I know I don't long for the gathering of the saints like I used to, like I once did. And we all usually acknowledge, including myself, that no, you're right. We don't do those things and then we feel guilty. And then we praise God for the much needed shot in the arm. And then we make a commitment to be more disciplined in our devotions. Is that what you were thinking? We sometimes take the command from Christ in Revelation 2, 5. Remember and do the deeds you did at first as saying, yes. I know I need to read more, pray more. I know I need to be more devotion or, or, or dedicated in my spiritual life. I need to be more diligent. I need to do the things I used to do. Listen, love for God displayed in spiritual disciplines such as prayer, reading God's word, uh, discipling your wife and children, faithfully attending the, saint, the gathering of the saints, it is important. It, you, we should uh, desire to be diligent and faithful and, and fervent in those things even. But what's the context of this This condemnation? Let's go back to it again. The church of Ephesus, second generation of believers who worked hard to persevere in what? Sound doctrine. And they would not allow any false teachings to enter into their church. It's Ephesus. All of the benefits that are being given to Ephesus, it's no wonder why Satan would want to destroy this church, to poison this church with false doctrine. He filled evil men, Satan did, to attempt to disrupt the foundations of that church, but to no avail. The church of Ephesus was located in a city with many people coming in and out and in and out. And they were constantly being confronted with false ideas from all over the world, you can imagine. And they were perched, if you will, positioned to be a light to the nations who were entering and leaving the Roman Empire. They had to be equipped. They had to be ready. So, they spent years sharpening their sword. And as they sharpened, there began to develop a scowl on their face there began to develop an attitude that was no longer enticing and inviting, but one that was defensive and on guard and ready for any person to be cut down with their sharpened sword. Their love for people had grown cold. They loved doctrine, but they didn't love people. They loved cutting down evil men who brought uh, false doctrine, cutting them down with doctrinal accuracy. But in the process, their love toward people became cold, unenticing, and uninviting. It's not that they have loved their lo- not that they have loved their lost their love for Christ. They loved Christ. Some suggest that they lost their love for one another, which might be possible. It happens when you're in a church where you're constantly being, no, that's not right. Nope, that's not right. Nope, that's not right. But doing it with an arrogant attitude, that happens. But the context is, is suggesting something different. They no longer express their former zealous love for Christ, listen, by witnessing on his behalf to the world. They were playing defense and doing so with a cold skepticism toward everyone except for those in their church. They exemplified and fulfilled what Christ said about the last days. Most people will, their love will grow cold, Christ says, that they will not endure. But to the one who does endure, they will be saved to the end. They didn't have any more offense. It was all about defense. Remember, this church was founded by in Christ by the Apostle Paul, the missionary. Paul's who great, whose great passion was to see the gospel spread to the nations. Paul who desired to take the gospel to Rome. And eventually, Paul wanted to take the gospel to Spain. It was his great desire to cross the waters, to go to Spain and to make the gospel known there. It was his desire that everyone come to the knowledge and love. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of Ephesus. They had that zeal at one point. At one point they were faithful. At one point they were diligent. They were zealous to share the gospel. With all of those who were coming into that port. If you can imagine. Maybe they were out waiting for people. As they were getting off the boat. Have you heard of Christ? And now rather they just stayed in their homes. That they met in looking out the window to see if anybody else was going to try to come in, waiting with their swords. Kind of like that old picture, if you will, of Malcolm X, who's holding a, an AK-47 looking out the window. Some of you don't know what that is. I'm sorry I even said that. Their hope was that visitors would hear the gospel before, leave Ephesus with the good news before, share it as they traveled across the waters before, and take the gospel to the nation that they were going to. Because 1 Timothy 1.2 says God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But somewhere over those 40 years, the church began to play less offense and more defense. At one point they had great joy. They loved witnessing about the life, death and resurrection of Christ. They loved to tell of the mercy that was shown in the sacrificial work of Christ. They loved to tell of the empty tomb. They love to tell of the glorious appearances of Christ. They love to tell of the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all men. They love to tell of the glorious ascension of Christ and that he promised to return in the same way. But at some point, amid the the working to defend and listen, this is the early church. Heresies about Christ were pouring in. Was he a man? Was he God? Was he only God and not a man? All of these heresies were pouring in. Much of what we have today about what we know about Christ was established in the first early church. They were refuting evil men, correcting heresy, and eventually just stopped loving. Imagine all of these people who were saying all these false things about Christ. You start to get a skepticism about everybody. They still love Christ. But their witness was not filled with love. If you've had to defend so many times, your patience begins to grow a little thin. If you're having to defend and defend and defend and to correct and to correct and to correct, your patience grows a little thin, doesn't it? You start to speak the truth, but not in love. They were into winning doctrinal disputes, but not telling or speaking the truth in love. Again, they were positioned to be a lamp. They were positioned to be a light to the nations. But their lack of love was threatening the testimony of Christ. Bringing reproach upon the church. And their light, because of lack of love, was growing dim. That's why Christ says, Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand from its place. You're meant to be a light. But if you don't operate in the manner in which you've been placed, your light will be removed. You don't want to be a light, you won't be a light. The message is for the body of Christ then for all times. Not just Ephesus, it's for all of us for all times. We must always be seeking to grow in knowledge. Yes, grow in sound doctrine. Yes, grow in understanding. And while you grow in doctrine, if you're not growing in love at the same time, something's wrong. If you're growing in doctrine, but not at the same time growing in love, something is wrong. You're missing something. We're missing something. Some might be thinking automatically of the passage, 1 Corinthians 8.1. Knowledge makes one arrogant or puffs up, but love edifies. Let me just say, it's not a strike against understanding. Not a strike against knowledge. Here's the strike. It's against those who were understanding. Against those who were knowledgeable because they weren't sharing the news about sacrificing food to idols, they weren't sharing with those who were unlearned about why that's not important, why they don't need to do that anymore. They weren't doing that in a loving manner. They had knowledge about why you don't need to do that. But they weren't sharing about why that's not necessary anymore in a loving way. So their knowledge was making them proud. It was making them arrogant rather than being gentle to the one who doesn't yet understand. They were learned, but they were merciless. They had no patience. They had no long suffering. They were all too willing to cut people off because they just didn't believe like them. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. You're not a Calvinist? Bye. Not reformed? Bye. Maybe I could have better conversations with him if I just patiently worked through certain things with him. Even though their, at, their understanding was correct, their attitudes were not. Correct understanding, false attitude. You need to have both. The same could be said for those who are ruthless about explaining the doctrines of grace. I said ruthless about explaining the doctrines of grace. They say the doctrines with no attitude of grace towards those who may be having a hard time receiving these things. Well remember how hard it was for you the first time that you heard the doctrines of grace. It was not easy. You mean I don't have a will? You my will is enslaved I mean what am I a robot? Well lovingly work through those things. How gentle are you I ask you How quick to anger are you, I ask? How long suffering are you? How patient are you? Do you interrupt people when they're trying to explain themselves? Especially when it comes to false doctrine. Are you loud and brash and even boastful? Do you display your love for God when you share the gospel with creatures made in God's image? Let me ask you, saints, what do we have that we have not first received? And freely received. Therefore freely we must give. We must be aware that we do not become cold in our evangelism. We must be aware that we do not become only those who are theologically equipped, who have these beautiful pearls that we shine, but are never willing to share them with those who do not yet have them. We have been perched as light And we must not hide our light. We must not lose our love for Christ in sharing the good news of the gospel, the goodness even of the gospel. The greatest grace that is offered freely has been given to us in Christ. The love of Christ, that He would offer His life as a ransom for our sin. The urgency of the moment because Christ has promised that He will return. Dear ones, let us ask ourselves, how long has it been since I shared the gospel with anyone? Anyone? Don't let our excuse be. Well, the church hasn't set anything up yet. Waiting for corporate evangelism. I remember, and I don't mean to drop the name, but it is hopefully going to add some weight because I've just mentioned the the greatness of his commentary. I remember sitting with G.K. Bill and asking him about this matter of evangelism and witnessing. Because at that time I thought, hey, Mr. Beale, this is all great information, but when are you witnessing? I was really trying to accuse him of not being a witness. And here's what he said with me. Well, and he, he stutters a lot. Well, well, here, here's what I think effective witnessing is. It's frequenting, frequenting the same places. And when you do having kind, loving conversations with those people that you normally interact with. And praying for opportunities that the Lord would open up for you to share the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, for example, I go out to walk my dog. He has a country accent. I go out to walk my dog. And when I go out and walk my dog, I see some of the same people that normally walk their dog at the same time. And I try to spark up gospel conversations with them. That's us living life on life in our normal rhythms of life. Looking for opportunities to be a light. Because you're not in those circumstances, situation, wherever. You're not there by accident. You've been perched there. You've been positioned there. So while you're there, it's not just here I am. If you're seeing you living for the glory of God in all that you do. And God, give me opportunities. Then wherever you are, you should be looking for the opportunities. Can the church corporately go? Saying we will go on this day and on this time. Of course. Is it the only time when witnessing and evangelism can be done? Not at all. You have been positioned where you are. And it's not purposeless. Christ has uniquely placed you where you are. So that you might be a city on a hill. So that you might be an ephesus to the nations who are encountering you. Royal ones. Return to your faithful witness. You will have theological discussions about doctrine. Speak the truth in love. Is it difficult? Yeah. You get frustrated with people sometimes where they just don't get it. Hey, let's have more talks later. I understand you're wrestling with some of the things. Let me give you some resources and then we can talk about it. Ask God to give you the grace, strength, and humility. Because we only know what he's allowed us to know. And it's not for our glory, it's for his Thirdly, and finally, the call to repent and the promised reward. Here it is. Verse five. Verse five. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Uh, verse seven. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Uh, The call from our Lord is simple. Repent. Return to the former things. And if you don't, then your light will be removed. Not that you won't be Christians anymore. We'll get to that in a moment. But if you obey, there is a great reward. Rekindle the flame he calls them to. Rekindle the flame for zealous witnessing. Remember why you're a lamp. Remember the things that you used to do in your witnessing. Go back to those four more things. Turn away from that sin and return to the way of righteousness. Their lack of love for witness was sinful. It's, it's a sin to not witness. Isn't going to the nations, make the, make Disciples, isn't that a call to witness? Paul talks about this often, even the way that we live. We live our lives. It's to be be a witness. If there's no difference between us and the world, we're not being faithful witnesses. Their lack of love and love for witnessing was sinful in the sight of all, and the one who sees all. And there's a great consequence for refusing to repent. Christ threatened to come and take away their lamp. If they did not repent, they would no longer be a presence in that city. That their presence and influence would would be extinguished. They wouldn't be a church anymore. Now, there would be individual believers, yes. But the church as a whole would no longer be a light in that city. There would no longer be a church. Their influence disappeared they would lose the responsibility that they had been entrusted to much like the old testament israelites they were called to be a light to the nations they were called to display what the kingdom of god was but time after time they for, they forfeited their witness time after time they joined the pagans followed other gods they were not a loving witness to the nations and their light their light was extinguished and this is true for the church of all time We must be a faithful witness, faithful in evangelism, or these churches that are meant to be light will lose their light and the light will be given to someone else. Imagine if all of us in this church simply stopped sharing the gospel. Imagine if all of us in this church simply stopped inviting our family and friends to this church. If we simply stopped witnessing in our regular everyday lives, what would happen? This church would only last a generation. Our lamp would be taken away. And we will only be remembered for a short time. And it will only be remembered by those kids who just went to class. By the Noahs and the Davinas. When they get older, they'll say, I used to go to a little Reformed Baptist church once upon a time. Whatever happened to that church? Oh, they don't exist anymore. Why? Why don't those... Churches that, that you and I and our grandparents grew up in, why don't some of them exist anymore? Many reasons, but one of them is not having a love for witnessing the gospel of Christ anymore. You don't want to be a lamp, you won't be a lamp. But, but if we return, if we remember where we have fallen and do the former things, if we hear what the Spirit of God says of the churches, there's a great promise. first is that our lamp will remain. Don't you want it to be known that you go to RBC? That you are in a church where faithful exposition is being brought Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Where we are passionate about sharing the gospel. Where we hope to disciple men and women to grow in Christ. Where we love each other. If we do the former things, the light that Christ has given us will remain. And we will continue to be used in advancing the kingdom of God. What a great privilege that is. We have the privilege of helping to advance the kingdom of God until the consummation of the kingdom. And we are told by church history that the church of Ephesus actually did repent. That they did repent and that their lamp remained for at least one, another 100 years. We have a, a letter from an early church father who wrote about the health of the church of Ephesus. May I encourage you, brothers and sisters, use wisdom and discernment as you witness, but never lose love. Never lose zeal for the good news of the gospel of Christ. Never think that we get away from that. We are always built on the rock of ages. There's more blessing that is promised. Listen to our Lord again. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There is embedded in the call for those who hear what the Spirit says in acknowledgement that the elect will hear. The one who hears are those who have been enabled to hear and they will respond in obedience because they are the church. They will accept this message and the promised inheritance of salvation blessings will be theirs. Those who witness are believers. If you continue to witness, if you continue in your faithfulness in evangelism, it's evidence that you love God. It's evidence that you've tried something that you love more than anything and you want everyone to taste it and you're inviting them to come. It's Christ. Can you ever imagine a day in your life that you will ever stop telling people about Christ? being a witness for Christ, if you could say, yeah, maybe, maybe you don't belong to him. But if you could say, I could never think of a day I, that I would ever do that. And I pray it's because you're one of his. And that you will be given the reward of the tree of life. What's a tree of life? It, it is to symbolize Christ and his work on the cross. It's not to symbolize the cross. It's to symbolize Christ and his work on the cross. The right to the tree of life is what Adam and Eve lost. They lost their uh, ability to fellowship with God. They were separated. They were cast out of Eden. But if you obey, if you heed the words of your Savior, you will enjoy consummated restoration of the divine presence of God, which has already been inaugurated here and now in the presence. The kingdom of God is now. witnessing to an unbelieving world implies that we believe this is the best news there is. Tell somebody about your favorite food. You have no shame. Tell someone about your your Christ. Please don't clam up. Advance the kingdom. You are citizens of the kingdom, aren't you? Don't leave your first love. Share the gospel that has been entrusted to you. Do so with love and compassion. This is the person that you are called to be. Remember, when you are sharing with people that are are testing your patience, remember that you, you used to be where they are. So be merciful to them. Let them know that you are saying what you are saying because you do love them. But even more, you are saying what you are saying because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His only begotten Son. And whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's why you're saying what you're saying. Repent, return, and God will grant you the right to the tree of life. Amen. Let's pray.